Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings is where we are, and we will be for the next few weeks as we begin a a series of messages that will outline for us the life of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Here's the key concept today. Obey without delay. Obey without delay. We'll see that in the life of Elijah. 1 Kings 17 is where I want you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to look at uh, chapters 16 and 17 a little bit today. Elijah was God's man and God's witness to the people of Israel in a dark time. 860 years approximately before Christ, Elijah comes onto the world stage as a prophet. Now, it may be asked, why is it that we would want to study the lives of these ancient people? Why would God use up space in His book, the Bible, to tell us these old stories, these stories that are from so long ago and so far away? What possible good can this story do for us today? And here's the answer to that question. God tells us what happened then because in so doing, He's telling us what happens now. In these past events, in Elijah's day, we will see what happens when decisions are made that lead people away from the one true God. In Elijah's stories, that is occurring. The leaders of the land have turned their back on God. In Psalm 11, verse 3, we see this, this verse, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that verse asks the question, what should God's people do when the authorities of a nation no longer seek to honor the foundations laid down for that nation by the one true God? Elijah faces that exact situation, and I will say to you, so do we. So do we. Yesterday was a beautiful day. I don't know if you noticed it. You all got paid yesterday. You got paid for living in California yesterday. That's the kind of day we come outside and we say, this is why I live in California. (laughs) Right? Oh, what a day. And so, I don't know what you did with the day, but for us, we did chores around the house in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I decided, well, you know, it's such a nice day. I'm going to go outside, take some books, and I'm going to try to tackle that stack of books that have been laying there for so long. One of the books that I'm going through little by little is a history of uh, uh, religion as it affects American culture over the course of, of our, our land. And it's a, it's a fascinating book. And I was reading about the period of history history where our nation was, was uh, uh, emerging from the 1800s into the 1900s, just starting the 20th century. And this is the sentence that the author used to describe the intellectual uh, ethos, the intellectual current of the day way back then, 121 years ago. He says this, ever since the Greeks Intellectual inquiry had been directed at discovering fixed truths that were, being, that were assumed to be built into the scheme of things. But now, now meaning in the beginning of the ni- uh, 1900s, now modern intellectuals were proclaiming that truth is culturally bound and always changing. I thought to myself, that's what the intellectuals were beginning to come to at the beginning of the 1900s? 
and it's only gotten more profound and faster, that current of understanding, to, uh, 121 years later. The foundations, nothing is more foundational than a concept that there is something that's true. The foundations are being destroyed. Elijah lived in a day when the foundations were being destroyed. 860 years approximately before Christ, about 58 years at, after the division of the land of Israel. What you need to know is that the, the, the nation of Israel divided after King Solomon, and the northern part of the nation retained the name Israel. The southern part of the nation took the name Judah. And Elijah primarily, not exclusively, but primarily speaks to the north. And he is a man of bold action when called into action. Teddy, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, in a speech in 1903, uh, used this famous sentence, speak softly and carry a big stick, and that would be Elijah's model as well. You see no long speeches from Elijah. You see no long sermons from Elijah. There's no poetry. There's no song. Nothing like that. But you see action. Seven kings have come and gone, Ahab, the king Elijah faces, being the seventh in the north. And all of them had the little tagline next to their name, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But Ahab is the worst of the worst, and that's who Elijah faces. And so to set the stage for understanding Elijah, first let's understand his nemesis, King Ahab. Go back to one chapter, back to 1 Kings 16, and we'll start our reading in verse 29. Here we read about uh, the kings of Israel. It says this, in the uh, 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, the north. He reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. The worst of the worst is Ahab. And he worships a pagan god called Baal. Now, we have Americanized that name. Usually, we just say Baal, okay? But this is a, a, a pagan god in the minds of the people. And what do we know about this God? The word can literally mean owner, master, or husband. And among the Canaanites, Baal, this, this God, oversaw in their minds the winds and the rain. He was part of a pantheon of gods. Each of those gods had a specific assignment, so to speak, in their, in their mindset. And Baal oversaw rain and fertility, fertility of the land through the rain, fertility of people, and fertility of the animals. Because remember that these people were mainly farmers and sheep herders and so forth. And the farmer depended on rain for the fertility of the land. He depended on his family to work the farm and the fields. And he depended on the animals to reproduce, to expand the flock. 
So in the pagan mindset, Baal became a very important god because you've got to be on the good side of the god who's responsible for reproduction and reign. And that's, in their mind, the work of Baal. And this issue, who really controls the wind and the rain, is going to be the first area of conflict between Ahab and Elijah. He is leading the people towards pagan gods. And the Israelites were susceptible for that pagan way of thinking. They often strayed away from the worship of Jehovah to, to, uh, to, to these, these kinds of thoughts. And the reason for that was because there was a common mindset, a common assumption that was shared by all of the nations around them at that time that they bought into from time to time. You could call it the lie of their age. Every age has a lie that Satan particularly uses to lead people astray. And the lie of this age was that the God's power was territorial. So in other words, if you went to a different place, you would worship a different God because in that place, that God had strength. That mindset was among the Canaanites. And the children of Israel never fully eradicated the Canaanite people. In fact, they intermarried with the Canaanite people, which is what they were specifically warned not to do. And because of that, they easily succumbed to this kind of thinking. The idea that, you know, Yahweh he is the God of the wilderness, the God of the desert, because that's where we were introduced to Him. That's where Moses kind of told us all about Him in the desert. But now in the land, there already is a God working here, Baal, the, the Canaanite pagan god, and they were susceptible to move over to worship him, particularly in the north, in that northern kingdom. But they didn't leave Yahweh totally behind. Archaeologists have uncovered lists of the various forms of the way that the name of the, of the pagan god Baal is used. Very often, it's found in a comp as a compound word with some other, with some other word attached. 50% of the times when we find this, this word with another word attached, 50% of the times, the word that's attached is Yahweh. 50% of the times. In other words, what they were doing is this. So far, what they were doing is they're not leaving Yahweh completely behind, but they were blending together the ideas of the one true God and the false pagan God. They're saying to themselves, we'll have a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion, a little bit of this faith, a little bit of that faith. We'll kind of mush it all together, jumble it all together, and that, that will serve us well. We're keeping all the bases covered when we do that. But what they're really doing is belittling the one true God. But Ahab and his queen, Jezebel, who we'll meet in, in a moment, Jezebel went further. They pushed for the eradication completely of the worship of the one true God. So who's Jezebel? Jezebel was a Phoenician princess. In other words, she was a Gentile. Ahab married her, no doubt, as a part of a treaty which the, with the northern neighbor, Phoenicia. It made sense, made sense for trade, it made sense for commerce, it made sense as a military protection for, to his north. In other words, it was good politics for Ahab to marry Jezebel. But in marrying her, Ahab not only married out of the faith, which they were specifically told not to do, 
but he married a woman who was zealous for her pagan faith, zealous for her false religion. And as usual, what happens over time is that the forces for evil cannot stand the forces for good. Jezebel wanted to completely stamp out the worship of Yahweh in the north and not let it be tolerated at all. And I want you to see that this pattern repeats itself. God is bringing this ancient story forward to us because He wants us to see this happened and this happens. First, what happens is it's a call to be open-minded. It's a call to be broad, have a broad view of things, a willingness to accept and see things as true from all sorts of opinions, all sorts of lifestyles, all sorts of religions, even if they completely contradict one another. Let's just tolerate it all. That's how it begins. And it's tolerated until you set forth the truth of the Word of God. And when you put, start, start teaching the truth of the Word of God, all of a sudden tolerance goes out the window. It's true of ancient paganism and it's true in our day as well. The one thing that is not tolerated is the truth of God's Word. And Jezebel would have the Jehovah worship, Yahweh worship expelled from the land. The foundations are being destroyed. And today we live in a time when the foundations are systematically being destroyed. And it's not through ignorance, and it's not inadvertent. There is an effort to undermine the truth of the way that God orders society, the way that God orders family, the way that God orders family, uh, 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 gender, and the way that God orders law and respect for Himself. And this is not new. It happened in the ancient Israel, and we read the events as we read the story of uh, Elijah. We see the results because Elijah still believed that Psalm 33, 12 is true. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And he looked around and he saw the nation was going away from that. Elijah will show us what one bold person can do. With Ahab and with Jezebel, the slide away from Yahweh has come to the breaking point. And God enlists this man, Elijah, to step out and take a stand. Because when the Ahabs and the Jezebels of the world are active, God will raise up an Elijah. God will not allow his, himself to be without a witness. And we are the witnesses in our day. We are the influencers in our day as the foundations are removed around us. And so Elijah shows up in chapter 17. Actually, there's no introduction. He steps onto the stage of history without being told. We're not told about his family. We're not told about his background, or even what tribe he is from. But Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. And he lives in a time when the people around him are declaring the exact opposite. But he says, my God is Yahweh. We know he was from Gilead. Gilead was a rugged place. It produced rugged people. They lived close to the land in Gilead. We've uncovered rock-hewn huts that the farmers and the shepherds would live in in this day in Gilead. No one had ever heard of him before, and that's lesson number one. God does not need people with fame and reputation to accomplish what he wants done. 
Do not think that maybe you're not anybody that anybody would call important. You're not well-known. You don't have a lot of influence by the world's standards. Therefore, you can do nothing for the cause of Christ. Do not think that. God does not need famous, uh, important people to do his bidding. He needs willing people. He needs faithful people. People who will say yes. Now, in the New Testament, we have a parallel to the prophet Elijah. In fact, it's talked about specifically in the New Testament. John the Baptist, so to speak, is the New Testament version of Elijah. And when John the Baptist describes himself, he describes himself not by his accomplishments, uh, accomplishments, not by his credentials. He says simply, I am a voice. And Elijah would say the same thing. I am a voice. What matters is the message. The voice is what the voice says. That's what's important. It's not who the voice is. This is not about fame and prestige. This is about the voice that speaks the word of God. And here in our passage, chapter 17, Elijah has come out of the countryside into the big city, into the palatial city that Ahab has constructed for himself. He must have looked like a Grizzly Adams type of character walking through the streets. And he comes up to the king and he speaks to the king in a way the king is not, being, is not used to being spoken to. There's no, you know, bowing. There's no asking for permission. There's no, you know, regal kind of uh, trappings of his conversation. He simply says this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. No introduction, no dialogue, no long speech. Elijah's prophecy lasts one sentence. One sentence. No dew, uh, no rain for you until I say so. Now, you ask yourself, how could this country bumpkin of a guy be so bold to come into the king in this palatial area that, that, that he has created for himself and speak this way. How is it that we can have boldness like that? He was bold because Elijah knew God. He knew that there was a God and that the one true God was the only God. And he knew that that God is involved in the events of his world. He knew that he came from a faithful family that worshipped Yahweh, the one true God. His parents gave him that name, my God is Yahweh. And he was sure that God loved his people and that God was jealous for his people and he will direct his spokespersons to confront where confrontation is needed. And so when Elijah got the job, it was obey without delay. And he went to Ahab. But more than that, Elijah knew that his God was near. He says, before whom I stand. That's a little more than just, I know that God is real. I know that God exists. That is to the point of, I know that God is with me. I know that God is near me. And because he was aware that God was always with him and near him and was watching over him, Elijah was not uh, infected with the lie of his age. He was protected. But before whom I stand also means I stand at the ready. I stand ready to receive instructions because I'm part of what God is doing. I stand ready to receive those commands. I'm under his watchful eye. I I stand with him and I stand for him and I am loyal to him. 
Put these things together. Elijah's holy boldness comes from the fact that he believes in God's person. He believes in God's plan. And since he is part of God's people, he knows that he's part of the plan working out. And that's us as well. Part of the plan working out. But there's more with Elijah. Elijah knew the Scriptures. Elijah knew that in Deuteronomy chapter 11, Moses speaks to the people just before they cross over into the promised land. Deuteronomy is a series of very long speeches, but in this particular speech, as he speaks for God, Moses says this, So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine, and oil. Be careful, careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will, not yield, will, will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. See, Elijah looks around him and he sees, you know, Moses spoke about this years ago. Moses warned us against this years ago. What Moses was warning us against is coming true right before my eyes. The nation was being pulled away from the worship of the one true God. And the people of God needed to be confronted with the fact that God keeps his word. Both his promises and his punishments. God keeps his word. And now God is prompting Elijah to say, now is the time. This is all going to come together. No rain. No dew. No moisture at all until I say so. But there's more that's prompting Elijah. We don't learn about it till about 900 years later after this scene. But approximately 900 years later, the half-brother of Jesus, James, in the book that he authors that's in your New Testament, writes this about Elijah, James 5. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Elijah was a man of prayer. He didn't just toss out this prophecy and hope for the best. Elijah, Elijah prayed to God about what he read in the Word of God and what he saw in his nation. And basically what he was praying was, God, keep your word. Have your way, because your word and your way is ultimately best, and we're missing it. We're missing it. God, you have to get these people's attention. You have to turn these people around, and I'll be a part of it. And God says, yes. So, they believe that Baal is the God of the wind and the rain. Not only is that false, it's harmful. This drought is not going to be just a judgment on a rebellious people. This drought is going to demonstrate how false and powerless pagan gods are, how false the idea of any alternate god is except the one true God. Elijah simply, simply lets it be known. Ahab, it's going to be no rain. Nothing you can do about it, nothing that Baal can do about it because he is powerless and he is fake. But I represent the one true God. And if I say there will be no rain based on what God's word comes to me, then there will be no rain. And I want you to see there's no if here. There's no conditions. There's no negotiations. Elijah is not calling Ahab to repentance. This is done. 
And it reminds us of something that we see over and over again in the Scripture that we need to understand for ourselves, and that is time runs out. This is judgment, straight and plain and simple. The foundations are being removed, and this is what happens. Not only will there be no rain, there's not going to be any dew, there's not going to be any moisture, there will be drought, which will bring famine, which will bring disease, which will bring death, and that's exactly as it was so for three years and six months. The land dried up because of a one-sentence prophecy of a man who obeyed God. And then God says something important to Elijah. Look at verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide. <laughs> hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will, uh, you will drink from the brook, I have, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. God says, okay, you got to get out of Dodge, because Ahab is not going to be happy about this actually coming to pass. And Elijah, I'm going to hide you, I'm going to protect you. Because Ahab's going to come looking for you. Look at the next sentence, verse 5. So he did what the Lord told him. Good policy. He did what the Lord told him. Obey without delay. Now, you've heard me use that phrase before. And, and uh, some while ago I used it. I, I told you about the fact that this was one of the little sayings that Sylvia and I had in our household as we were raising our, our girls. Obey without delay. When we ask you to do something, uh, we don't want a debate. We don't want a discussion. We don't want you to, to hem and the haw and to kind of hope that somehow we're going to forget about asking you to do that. No, no. We want you to do it right now. It's good policy in parenting, and it's good policy in following God. Because Elijah had to get away, get away to safety, and get away and tune into God all by himself. And as things got drier and drier and drier, you can imagine Ahab trying to find Elijah so that he can reverse this curse. But no reverse was going to come until it was completed. Three and a half years of drought and famine. Now, we're going to leave Elijah right here by the side of the brook, for today. Next week, we're going to find him there and go on in the story. But I want you to see that in Elijah, we have a man who stands before the Lord at the ready and stands before his time when the foundations are being destroyed and is ready to say what God has him to say. And that's exactly where we need to stand as well, to ready to be bold for the Lord who does not change when the foundations are being destroyed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an example like Elijah, and thank you for a man who was able to say yes to your call. And we all who know you as Savior, we're all called in some way, and we'll have probably opportunities somewhere in the week ahead to represent your kingdom against the false kingdoms of the world. Help us to do that well. Help us to do that with humility. Help us to do that bathed in mercy and grace. But, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to obey and not delay. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.